Hello and welcome to our first podcast. This is edgeofplay.com, bringing you podcast number one. So you've got me, Jack Norbury, and I'm joined by... James Stokes, Edge of Play coach. And Stuart Montague, Edge of Play coach. <laughs> sort of. Um, so let's start with Stuart, because Edge of Play, people that go on our site and so on may not know Stuart, so could you say who you are and how you know us? I know you guys uh, through, coached with you for years, um, met Jack at university, uh, was part of the uh, founding group who started Govern, the football team that we now manage, assistant manage, um, and so known each other for nearly two decades now, and coached, two al- decades. Now, and coached alongside each other and met James shortly after that when he joined Govern. and. Uh, and joined us, and we've all been coaching together for that amount of time. Yep, so, uh, assistant to the manager. <laughs> That's important things to mention there. Uh, so, and James, obviously, they know me and you, but uh, maybe just reminding people how we know each other and why we're doing edge of play in a, in a nutshell. Yeah, very similar to uh, Stu, that we've played and coached together for years, um, and we are the, the co-founders of Edge of Play. Um, so you see our faces quite a lot on the website, and now we're trying to podcast as a different platform to get through to people. We're thinking that each week we'll talk about something that's topical, something that's out there. It could be something from the weekend games and the professional level, something from our weekend games, or just something that's in there in the public consciousness at the time. Uh, so we're going to try and chat about things today on that note. We're going to look at Simbins, the idea of Simbins in football, which apparently is going to be rolled out across many leagues, including the league that our club govern playing. And another thing I wanted to talk about today was more of a, a universal topic, really, that's often discussed, and it's about the percentage of the game that is mental to physical, the ratio, which is the most important, which is the thing that helps you get ahead. So I thought we'd start with that one today. Um, I think it's an interesting one because it's open, so you can always, uh, there's no right answer I wouldn't have thought for it. Uh, and one leads to the other, I would have thought you, um, you, can't, you can't perform any of the technical um, Abilities that you you want to try and impose onto the game without the the physical aspect being there behind it, but then also to be driven enough to be a physical specimen, uh, you need you need the mental side as well, don't you? If you look at mm. some of the people who are you know the fittest players who play for all the the high pressing teams now, they are physical, but they have to have that mentality where they want to be they they want to excel physically and they want to be fitter than everyone else. So they tie into each other quite well, don't they? We do. I think, it, yeah, you, you need to have both. Certainly, I think to get ahead at the top level of the game, you are going to need to have strengths in physical and strengths in the mental area. We need to be clear as well what is our definition of mental and physical. Because if someone kind of obvious, like you could say physical is speed and, and strength and, and core stability and, and all those things. The thing is, you look at someone and say, yeah, he's fast or he can keep going all day. But you could also think of things like height as well, uh, something that that person's not done anything to get that, but the tall, and that could help them. That's a physicality they've got. And I remember looking at back at David Beckham, his body structure. They often said it was almost the perfect shape for a footballer. He wasn't too tall, wasn't too short. He had to, he was six foot, excellent um, body fat ratio. Uh, he went all the bleep tests. So he had this phys- physicality, which yeah, he worked at. But genetically, he was he was he was a good specimen, wasn't he? So you can look at that as physical. What do we call mental? Are we going to say for our discussion that we include the emotional side of that? I would argue we'd need to, wouldn't we? So you know, your emotional intelligence and the way you respond emotionally to things as well as your mental strength, which could be decision-making, problem-solving, resilience. I think the percentage, especially one that's going to relate to our, our coaches for edge of play, that percentage or the 
the corner that you're looking at if we're going to use the FA model because they're, they're there for a reason is going to change depending on the age range that you're coaching it's going to change depending on the individual that you're coaching I mean if you use the David Beckham example that you just used David Beckham wasn't always six foot you know but uh, eight years old he might have been smaller taller average he was probably smaller might well <laughs> I mean, sorry comparatively comparatively to the other players around him so obviously you've got to it's, it's very much got to be looked at on an individual basis I think um, so the age thing is interesting then to yeah. you saying maybe the ratio changes as we get older I think so I mean you're going to have a very um, standard way of looking at it aren't you that um, a lot of coaches uh, a younger level will want to work on the mental side of it so building good decision makers and problem solvers those kind of things you were, you were chatting about um, because the physicality of players is going to change as they grow older um, but what Stu was saying with the two go very much hand in hand is can you only work on the mental and not work on the physical and my example there is if you've got a, a young lad and you're not looking at the physical side of it and physical for me can also include stuff like diet um, when we're looking at it if you are if you have a young kid um, seven to ten years old even younger maybe and you're not looking at the physical side is that going to impact the mental side so if you're um, if you have a bunch of kids and we've got some that are overweight or some that are um, not eating properly or some that are not sleeping properly um, does that impact on your decision making your problem solving because if you're not physically fit even at a young age what are you going to be thinking of it's, as soon as you go out there and play you're going to be thinking I'm tired or you're going to be thinking um, I'm uh, you know I'm, I'm not as fit as the rest of the kids and that's going to be your sole focus your focus isn't going to be on um, making the right decisions yeah like tactics and stuff like tactics you could say with that couldn't you I totally agree with the professional game you've got so say you're not particularly mentally strong yeah. and let's say a person has not got a great game intelligence but you've got a team of nutritionists uh, physiotherapists sports scientists guiding you to everything yeah. your manager's tactically telling you everything it's, it's robotic almost here's the information you might be able to get away to an extent with your lack of mental strength because you're a specimen physically and you can you know you may be really quick so you can imagine yeah someone with lack of mental strength may be able to get away with it to a certain level because yeah. of the massive support network yeah but your 10 year old who might not have support network yeah how does he change the mental strength one of, one of my thoughts that I was having then when I know James is talking there about um, almost if you've got problems with it or what where, where you consider the, the issues that you might have of lifting them up I was thinking back to um, to a session that we saw a few years back if you if you remember Jack I think you were there as well it was put on by uh, went to see that, that uh, session by a Real Madrid coach oh yeah at Oldham and I just yeah. remember uh, obviously for like elite kids there was um, physically there was a there was a, a kid there who must have been a foot and a half shorter than everybody else but was picking up every drill he was telling everyone else what, what the purpose of the drills was and you could just see even though physically he was so far behind everyone else mm. he stood out a mile because of because of his mental agility and because of how mm. his game intelligence even at that age and you could see you know if, if you were going to pick one kid out of that group and think he's he's got talent it just shows you how that game intelligence 
can put you well ahead of people who've got physical talents. Yeah. Even if you're not, you know, if, <coughs> if you're behind, I think I imagine, I imagine a lot of clubs are, are looking for that now as well. You know. So, so do you think on that note then that'll be on the pro scouts and so on, and also as coaches to be patient enough with that kid who physically can't handle it, but he's got it, he's got it up here. How patient are coaches with a player like that? Because we know in England the problem for a long time was the biggest players got picked, mm. biggest, strongest. And that intelligent kid could have been sat on the bench and eventually leave the game, and that happened a lot. And I know when with United coaching, I know one of the focuses was they had to be big and fast right. for a spell. They didn't bring in small kids, and then we were saying, but Paul Scholes would never have made it. <laughs> and then just as that kind of thought was around, uh, Barcelona were in their pomp, and it was that moment where, oh right, small players can be brilliant, like Xavi's and Iniesta's. Well, so, yeah. I mean, you look at the two. If you look at City and Liverpool now, who are you know both putting up crazy numbers of points this year, mm-hmm. and they are even the small players in those teams are physically aggressive. Mm-hmm. You know they're winning back the ball. There's more recoveries. You look at the likes of you know Bernardo Silva, who you would probably have thought looking at him a few years ago, you think oh he's a bit of a flair player, he's a bit of a fancy player. But I watched both the uh, the Liverpool City games, and he was he ran further than anyone else. He was winning the ball back. And you don't necessarily need to be a huge unit anymore to be aggressive and to get turnovers in the right areas. Do you think the way the game's changed is helping those players? Because obviously it's, you look back at footage from even 10 years ago and it's, it's a more physical game and it was more lenient in the refereeing of the games. So you can imagine the more physical players back then were probably a little bit more dominant because they could get away with it. Do you think the way the game's changed um, to pick up certainly a lot more fouls and the way that players can, can be in terms of giving away little petty fouls is is helping the players that are not less physical because they're all very physical at, at that level but maybe um, as Jack pointed out the things that you, you cannot affect your height and the, the body shape and stuff like that, the stuff that you're born with you think it's helping those players you know what the pro game probably is isn't it it's helping players so yeah if you like you're mentioning Bernardo Silva you could say David Silva as well couldn't you Liverpool haven't really got an out and out target man of the old days and yet you have three incredibly skillful players would you be able to do that a while back in the 80s 90s maybe maybe not maybe you'd need more but do you think the grassroots game's changed though I was just about to ask do we allow the technical players to survive so if you take grassroots back 10-15 years and you had trials days which I'm not a big fan of but if you had trials days you probably looked at the big lads the fast lads those lads coming through that could impose themselves now even the, the referees now they do so many um, training days and referees courses and it's filtering down to, to the very um, beginner levels of refereeing is, is it coming through now to let the more technically and, and mentally strong players mm. thrive in grassroots football that's the thing as well we're kind of talking about the different types of physicality but small or big it's still a physicality isn't it so it's someone small with good stamina speed endurance and get around the pitch like your yeah your Bernardo Silvers that's still probably either way you argue it it's physical and then what is what is it about that then compared to the mental side of a player like Bernardo Silva let's stay on someone like him what is it about his mental game that makes him what he is because you mentioned before Monty with pressing that idea is a mentality isn't it so that is when yeah. he's going after the ball 
that's a mentality he's that's part of his mental strength his mental understanding I think with a lot of it, it's hard it's it's hard sometimes to scale down what we're talking about with these absolutely elite teams because even you know you try, trying to scale it down to our to grassroots level is difficult because trying to scale it down to mid mid table teams is difficult because they just haven't it's okay saying oh you want you want um, a player who's got technical ability who can also press who can also have stamina who mm. can also have X, Y, Z and that's why you're looking at these really really elite players now where those top three or four teams they're picking the players that have got absolutely every one of them so they can pick small players they can pick up a Bernardo yeah. Silva or a Naby Keita who can take a man on win the ball back physical, strong but I think sometimes as you come down you have to pick one or the other don't you a little bit right, yeah. almost like if you're Tony Pulis He's had quite a lot of success there because he likes stock, stacking his teams with big units. He doesn't pick fullbacks that can go up the pitch and play attacking football. He picks big lads. He doesn't want them getting too far up the pitch. He doesn't want to get beat. And it's still successful in a different way. He just picks to focus on, on well, I suppose it's physicality and mentality for him, isn't it? He likes winners, yeah. competitors, players, who yeah. are big, strong competitors. And occasionally he might lose to a more technical team, but there's you know, more than one way to skin a cat I suppose so we can say then that if we take this a little bit away from the pro game in towards grassroots is that maybe the pro game yeah the, the, the margins are so small we're saying pretty much everyone at the very top the elite of the game we're expecting excellent physicality and we're expecting really good mental strength and intelligence you'd, you'd think yeah, as we go down the levels are we thinking then that maybe yeah it becomes a bit of a choice between you're either mentally strong or physically strong yeah what do we think? I, th I think probably it's more probably more technical, isn't it? I would imagine that is probably the 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 the, the offset isn't usually physical and mental. They, they, I imagine you'll find quite a lot of teams, League One, League Two, Conference, who are quite physical and quite mentally uh, strong. Yeah. The trade off then probably more often becomes: Do you want those guys, or how much do you trade that off for technical ability? Who have. Uh, might not be as physically strong, or might not be as I mean, fit, but they've got a bit. Yeah. Of, they've got a bit of flair. They, they can. Yeah. You know, they've got a bit of quality. If you get to that level, if you get to conference level, mm -hmm. and go on to grassroots after that, how much do you think you can affect those two sides of it? So, if you pick up a player at a semi-professional level, how much do you think you can affect the physical side of his or her game, and how much do you think you can affect the mental side of his or her game? I was thinking about that. The mental side of it, you might be able to make huge advancements for the player but it's not as easy to quantify it is it you mm. can't you can say well we've improved your you've lost this much body fat and you've improved your speed by this much in six weeks you can quantify the physical a lot easier can you or you're getting through games now so the, the hard thing with that question is yeah how would you quantify that mental improvement yeah I definitely feel it takes longer mental improvements the more gradual it doesn't like you'd have a steep curve I don't feel but so is that a case why when they get when we have the coaches that are doing the younger side of it the focused on that mental side because that's the time to make your game intelligent players your quick decision makers your, um, your good problem solvers those those words that we're looking at definitely that's when you all your pathways are getting made isn't it as a child you're building up all those pathways yeah. in your head once they're, they're ingrained then don't they whereas you can still do those pathways as you get older learn a new language but a kid can pick up a new language quicker than an adult Absolutely. can, can't they? So it's yeah. got to be the same with if we don't flood them at a grassroots level, if us as coaches are not flooding the younger kids with decision making and chances to strengthen mentally, we'll let them down, won't we? Yeah. You're asking them to look at these tiny little bits to make players, but the, the time, especially when these are volunteer coaches, 
and they've got day jobs and families and the time you're asking to put in to make that make that player is, is a lot when you've got 10, 12 players in a squad and you're talking about personal development plans looking at each of those corners it's, it's a big ask to make those players isn't it yeah <laughs> I'm laughing because someone's just started drilling <laughs> door, which is really helpful for a podcast but um <laughs> No, it's it, for grassroots. It's the, it's the practicality. It's, it's blooming difficult, isn't it? How do you develop players? And like we said, physical is probably easy to see. Everyone will see a physical improvement uh, quicker than they'll see the mental improvement. Yeah. And so we've got to convince a player. Oh no, this is this is where you're getting better at it. You're improving your resilience, the way you deal with 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 problems. It's really difficult. And I think uh, I'm, I'm spinning that slightly as well. Do we think that it takes mental strength to improve your physicality? So I, I, I put down Ronaldo as an example. We compare Messi and Ronaldo. Ronaldo looks like he's had to work for every last bit of what he has. And you think that wasn't just him physically being good at doing something. He's mentally incredibly strong to, to, to keep pushing and pushing and pushing, isn't he, and reaching new levels. Yeah. So it's almost that like the two then almost become entwined with him, for me. His, phys- his physical and his mental are incredibly strong. There's a great quote about those two. Messi's an artist's dream and Ronaldo's an engineer's dream. Yeah. I love that. Because yeah. it is true and he has had to work very hard at it and that is that comes from the mental side. You'll know just well, I know, you boys might not, but I'm terrible at going to the gym. And that's the mental side of it. I can have little spells where I'm like, Yes, I hit the gym every morning, I'm up early and I'm mm. going there and then I'll fade and that's not you know, not having that ability to push myself through sometimes. Motivation is is difficult for a lot of people. That's why we have so many problems with obesity, um, people not being as active. Yeah, motivation. What motivates you to to do stuff? Grassroots coaches, you get one or two hours with them a week in training. What the what can affect them outside of it mentally in terms of family and school and social and all those elements. You don't you don't get to see that. So it's really hard to have a kind of consistent plan with them because there's so many. That's probably that's probably the the key skill. I'd imagine, if you think about it, the key skill of being a, a grassroots coach is time allocation of which are the problems that you can spend most time on, where are the areas that you're going to get most benefit from, if you've got problems, almost triaging those problems, and which mm. which ones do I spend, which ones do I allocate my resources to, because yeah. you've got such limited resources, and you know it's not like... If you're in the pro game, you can just go and pick up a player from somewhere else that you you can you know he's decent, you know he's got what you want. You haven't got that opportunity a lot of the time. The grassroots game, this is the raw material that you're working with. Yeah. And so it's how can I get the best out of it with the time I've got? That's probably the key skill, isn't it? Our level of game, and below our level of game actually in terms of age range, is going to be less tactical than the top level. Uh, and we see all the time that some players are physically brilliant but they seem to have no game intelligence so you could uh, it might be rapid a winger but we can outthink them or we can outsmart them in that way and then sometimes players lads that are clearly overweight but you can say straight away he's played a level yeah. you can't you can just tell by that thing so I think that's what we end up doing we end up trying to work out what someone's weakness is and we hopefully presume normally that it's either physical or mental at our level that we can count on that whereas yeah the higher you're going must be where's the weakness where's yeah. the weakness in yeah. that that player so we don't want to put a number on this. I think that'd be it'd be foolish. But to kind of bring this little discussion to a kind of uh, conclusion of sorts, would you say mental or physical one is more precedent? I'd always slide to the um, to the mental. 
think obviously if you've got you need you need a certain level of physical capacity before you can compete you know it's the idea that you could have 11 players that didn't have enough physical capacity oh but they're all smart well they're still going to lose games because they're not fit enough or whatever but I think all all of the things being equal I would I'd probably if I for my team I'd like to slide the the mental uh, side of it up a little bit and I think that because it gives you more gives you more options I think it gives you more tactical flexibility I would probably yeah, lean more to the mental, emotional side. Just but taking it as red though that you've got a base level of <laughs> genetics as well, isn't it? I think you'd have to say now to get to the professional game, the amount they run in a match. If you've not got a base level of physical, you know, physical ability, you won't be able to show your intelligence. Jan Mulvey wouldn't probably make it now, would he? Be less likely to. <laughs> I think you probably think in a, in a, in a high press. He might be. He might be a bit of an oddity, but I think um, <laughs> late, uh, later stage Jan Mulby probably wouldn't. Earlier stage Jan Mulby <laughs> yeah. was a bit. Of, he wasn't too bad actually. We'll have been moulded as well, though, from our experience as players and coaches. So none of us, Jack, will be the fastest out of the three of us. So none of us were ever blessed. Let's, let's just say with this then that is a ridiculous race. <laughs> 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 It'd be one of those underwhelming races you've ever seen. It would. But that probably moulded you as a coach, a coach because you've had years of not yeah. being physically fast. Therefore, you've worked on the mental side of the yeah, game. Therefore, yeah. when you get the players, you want to work on their mental side of the game. But do you know what? The, what I'd say about that maybe a little bit is that that's true. Um, and obviously, like I, I'm, a, I've generally played in defence. I've been a fullback a lot of time. I've played centre midfield, and I'm not the biggest guy in the world. But there's nothing, uh, there's nothing more pleasing than, than beating someone bigger than you in the air. So I, I learned very early on that even though they'd be physically bigger than me, I need to get up early, I need to get up over the top of them, I need to nudge them before they get up in the air. Yeah. And so that's again a little bit of you know, a little bit of game intelligence means that you can win that battle even though you've not mm. been blessed with the physical size. That's your mentality as well, isn't it? Yeah, of course yeah, it is. Yes. As well as your game yeah. intelligence, your mentality is I'm gonna beat you kind of thing. Because yeah. I, I was thinking it's a bit like managed to say that some of the best managers and coaches were not the best players. And maybe as we come down the levels, um, we're all in coaching none of us are going to say we're the best technical players we know that uh, maybe that's why I went to coaching you study your own game you do the best you can I definitely feel we've all got the very best out of what we've been provided with um, and yeah we've, we're first and you see players that are physically and technically leaps and bounds ahead of us but we believe our understanding of the game just hold, helps us stay in there doesn't it yeah. so is it similar with that then that you can your mentally strong players are mentally strong for a reason maybe they had to be to get to keep up, <laughs> so yeah, it well, I think the debate then goes on to other people. So, we'll welcome your thoughts on this physical, mental is it a completely mixed bag at different levels? Is one more important than the other? We'll welcome your opinions on that. We're going to talk about the idea of simbins in football. We've been told with the, the club we're with and the league we are in that from next season there'll be a simbin um, brought into place for dissent. Uh, James, can you tell us any more about that? Because you, you were our club secretary as well. Um, so yeah, we went to a league meeting and we were lucky enough to have a Premier League referee Chris Kavanagh there just chatting about a few changes to the game and one of the questions that was posed to him was this, this um, rule change... And the idea is that, um, like an orange card, like something that says, uh, you know, what you're doing isn't right, I'm going to give you 15 minutes to call off on the side. Is it 15 minutes? Yeah. Is that the proposal? Gosh, I think right. so. I think it's 15 minutes. 10 to 15 anyway, yeah. somewhere like that. Something that would normally be a yellow card? Yeah. 
we've not been told a great deal, have we? No. To be honest, we're, a lot of it still seems to be getting decided. It's a Simbin thing, like you'll see in rugby. I can see why they want to do something about dissent. The question I want us to have a quick chat about is, is this the best way to deal with dissent? I think when it comes to a lot of uh, a lot of implementation of like new rules or when they fiddle around a little bit with rules, the thing that frustrates me is the rules that they have in place currently are adequate for sorting out dissent. All you need is you need strong referees who are going to be backed up um, and also for the grassroots level you also need the top level of the game to care about dissent and they clearly don't you know yeah. the amount of times you can see a decision being given and, and there's all sorts of swearing in the referee's face or chasing the referee and causing murder and the referee just takes it and it just feels like if you did if you had strong referee that was backed up at the top level that that would go away the incentives would soon shift and it's like you know almost like simulation if you incentivize people to keep pushing this on the edges they'll keep pushing it because they're professionals who are trying to take every margin and it's only when you look at last week when you've got players like who are players are applauding the referee it's only because then it's so visible that the referee has to mm. book them for it yeah. Let me just they, throw something at you, because uh, Chris was saying this in the league meeting, that actually what you see on TV isn't a fair reflection of what the referee sees in the game. So he said, a lot of the time when it focuses on a player, the immediate one that springs to mind is Wayne Rooney whenever I, I, I think of dissent um, on the pitch. A lot of the time when it focuses on them, and you can make your best attempt to lip-read what they're saying, the referee is already focusing on something else. You don't see that because you can only see what's on television. The referee's got his back to him. The referee's looking at the next passage of play. Well, it's lost he's, in the noise of the crowd. He's talking stuff. He's talking to his assistants. It's lost in the noise of the crowd. So they're doing it quite sneakily. The rest do the best job they can, don't they? Um, there is... A, your point is completely valid. If everyone was strong, then there wouldn't be any dissent. Um... There's a lot of young referees coming through. You see it in junior games, you'll see it at adult football. There's a lot of 18, 19 year old referees coming through that want to get to the top um, top of the game. Now if we go back to the last topic and the whole mental resilience side of it, they're young referees as well. They won't have built up that mental resilience to some of this. So giving them something like a sin bin is gonna help those lads manage the game. It's gonna help them calm what is quite a heated moment, I think. And it might be good for those players as well, thinking about it, who clearly have some kind of anger issue. You know, they, In the heat of the, the moment, they go mad, they have to go off, they can go as mad as they want. They're missing football yeah. whilst they're stood on the side, you know, watching the game go on. I can see how that might have an effect, but it is, it, to me, the only issue is it's not getting to the root of the problem and it's just kind of another way of managing the problem. So, yeah, maybe that person now misses this next week he doesn't have a go at the ref maybe I'd like to compare it to and I know there's loads of reasons why this is not simple to the rugby model I remember saying this to a referee in one of those meetings a few seasons ago it works for rugby why can't we get it right in football so it's a different game it's totally different it just seems mad when you're watching the Six Nations or one of the big rugby games even in the last minute of the game a referee will make a decision not one person in this extremely physical game says a word to him not a word and every camera's on every player no one says a word and I know there's a lot of reasons why that's got to that stage that links so nicely just to Monty's point though. though so I'm a kid watching professional football and I see players screaming and shouting and mm. I see managers screaming and shouting I'm a kid watching professional rugby and I see them speaking respectfully yeah. to an official I think you do you're right it has a massive influence a huge influence and again it's incentives because 
those if those rugby players thought they could press for a referee and if they thought that dissent was going to get them somewhere, they'd do it because they're top level athletes and they're looking for every advantage. Yeah, yeah. There's been a couple of cases recently, weren't there, of rugby players like fake an injury and blood packs and a couple of weird yeah. ones, but you know, so they will try and get whatever edge they can. The reason that it's not worth it is because they know that it's it's far more likely it'll cost the team than it'll gain the team something. Whereas even down at our level, you know, I've been guilty of it for years. You push a referee as far as you can possibly push him. You you try and be his friend. If that helps, you'll try and apply pressure to him. You're if that cynical, helps, man. shout the loudest. Yeah, it, it's do. sad, isn't you, it? But you that do. It's about happening. incentives of how what what can I get out of this for my team as a coach. What are you saying to your player that's come off for 15 minutes? I'd, I'd definitely be looking at the fact that you're letting the team down. Yeah. You know, yeah, you, your team are now playing without you. You've definitely got... A, it probably would empower a coach, wouldn't it, to say, not just you've got a £10 fine, mate. They might go, so what? But now you've just lost 10, 15 minutes, and because that, the team lost the game, you're not playing the next game now as well. So that could empower coaches to control dissent. I can see that. I could see also, though, that if you've got certain players who maybe bully referees a little bit all the way through the season, that you don't mind every now and again if one of them comes off for 15 minutes, because if you've got five penalties and 24 offside decisions out of it, yes. then, Fine. you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> you play on the edge. It's like so it's, it's like it's like physical teams you put the foot in, you know, if, you, if you're constantly making tackles that are just above a yellow card, then when one of your players eventually gets a red card, okay, you might have gone over the top a bit, but... Is that thing of yeah. over the course of a season is that helping or hindering you you know what with that as well one thing we probably our club has had issues with dissent no doubt about it imagine a scenario where which has happened recently a really bad tackle goes in and the referee doesn't take action and your players to go off injured and so someone says ref how can you not have done that and the referee deems that as dissent and it, it's almost like a double punishment then and so I think with this it can't just be right let's improve dissent why are people giving dissent? Is there any part of that? Part of it might be social, society, you know, and all that. Fine, we need to look at that. Is part of it the referees? Is there any part of it? Are we allowed to say that some of these referees, for any number of reasons, are not tackling <laughs> bad tackles? Mm. And that's leading to dissent. It's just as simple as no, no matter what happens, deal with it. And maybe that's the case. You want to make a change, it needs to take time and you need to have an impact. So, for example, the um, the Mike Dean example is always a really good one. They made a, a change about pushing and pulling shirts in the uh, penalty area and giving away penalties. And Chris was saying that Mike Dean went on a one-man mission and gave literally, I think he gave eight penalties or something in five games. In five games, he said, I'm going to stick to the letter of the law here. Penalty, 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 penalty. He said it looked crazy. He said, but he made his point. Now, whether that's reduced it or not, he made his point. I think if you get these young kids in, or referees at amateur and semi-professional and then professional levels, and say, simbin, 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 it might seem ridiculous to start with. You might have an 11-a-side game, which is down to nine versus eight at one point, because five players are off the pitch. But you have to be radical in that change mm. to actually make people change. You have to say this, you know, you're going to get punished. You're going to continually get punished until you realise that this is an acceptable behaviour. And, and maybe those referees trying to help them out on this as well. Then, once dissent gets over the months, it'll take months, won't it? Once they, people get it in their heads, right? Referees do this now. Yeah. It was nine aside last week, and we couldn't cope with the space. Um, then the referees may be less in their ears. They start to make stronger decisions in other areas don't they because yeah. they're not getting non-stop harassment basically so I could see that sometimes they're an attitude at our level 
I find when I say our grassroots level is that we worry too much about the fine that comes with the punishment. I've seen people say, oh, come on, you don't want him paying, I don't want you paying 30 quid yeah. fine. You think, well, no, if, if yeah, like you said with my dean, someone's broken the rule, maybe we need to be a bit firmer to it. And yeah, you got sent off because you did descend twice. Well, I've said, <laughs> for, I've said for years now that it's a, it's so strange that at our level, um, you only ever see sort of really you only, you only really see yellow cards for descent and red cards for terrible tackles. Whereas in any normal game of football, there's four or five yellow cards for tackles. Mm. It's not vicious. It's just someone's gone for the ball. They haven't got it right, or someone's made a bit of a cynical foul. It's not violence. It's a cynical foul. It's part of the game. Mm. It's you know bookings are part of the game really. They're part of the laws. So I mean, if you're looking for discipline, I, I think really you'd be much better off finding the club after a certain amount of bookings it's like once you've picked up 25 bookings then that's the the cost of it once you've picked up 30 that's the cost of it and then if you are a club that's really ill-disciplined then it'll show really but a referee walking off a pitch after giving four yellow cards that should be normal and run of the mill really I'm not sure we should be Mm. fining people for just slightly mistiming a tackle if it's a genuine tackle they've probably sat down and thought well how do we stop these players from doing it or we're going to have to find them a set amount pres- of money yeah I presume the, the FA I presume the main argument behind this is the losing referees you hear it all the time yeah. there's a lack of referees what's the way to tackle the, the, the lack of referees and the referees leaving the game descent so I can see why they're, they're targeting that idea that they want less hassle and you can totally appreciate that can you do we think then that it should be across the whole level of the uh, whole level of the game. Should it be from the pro game to the grassroots game? Because it feels like at the moment they're using the grassroots game as a pilot for it. I think they're doing it right. Pilot it for a season. If it needs improvement, improve it. If it works, push it up. And yeah, I, I can see that. Stuart, what do I, you think? I can see the thought to it. I just it's with this and with a few other things like um, even with uh, VAR to a, to a certain extent as well. I just feel like sometimes it's pushing it down the road other than actually dealing with the problem and saying, mm. right, okay, the problem is descent, so you've got a yellow card in your pocket, use the yellow card. That's that's the solution to it, especially up at the top level. I think it's different down at the R level where you know, you might need different, um, different solutions, a bit more flexibility. But up at the top level especially, I just feel like a lot of the time there's like, oh, we've come up with a new initiative. We don't need a new initiative. Just make... Just, empower the referees to use the laws properly and to be forceful with them so we'd like to again know what grassroots coaches out there people listening what are your thoughts on this idea of a sim bin for dissent is this going to tackle the main problems in, in football or is it just kind of putting a plaster over the problem and we're not really getting to the root of it and what's causing the, the dissent in the first place thank you very much for listening I hope you found it useful three old friends talking to each other about football <laughs> they can't go wrong can you um, so goodbye from James bye there you go Stuart yeah see you guys yeah and we'll look forward to speaking to you again or speaking at you again next time